Let's give a warm welcome to Colonel John Summers. And his wife, Mary, all the way on the back row. Jo John, I ask, give Mary a hand. She's back there waving. <clears throat> My wife and your wife both wanted to sit in the back row. Does that mean anything, or...? That way, I know my wife is signaling me all the time when I'm speaking. It's cut it, you know. You've been up there. They're all, they're all yours. <laughs> Thank you, General Bill. <laughs> um, you know, he said uh, your, your life would be changed. Um, I mean, I certainly couldn't guarantee that. But mine, mine was the uh, very first time. I went to Israel, it was in uh, 1972, and it was just another place. I'd been in uh, Egypt, I'd been in um, Cyprus, Syria, Lebanon, all over the place. Israel was just the last stop before I was heading back home, and it meant nothing more to me than one more stop. Even though, as a kid, um, I'd been in church and Every, every time the door was open, my mother had me in there, and I'd been in Sunday school and all the rest of that stuff. And I knew about uh, Jesus, and I knew about, I knew all those stories, all, of, all the Bible stories, and I even enjoyed reading it a lot. But in my mind, in my mind, there was a, a curtain, and um, I, that's the only way I can explain it. That doesn't even really explain it, but the Jews of the Bible... The Jews of Jesus' time, the stories of all those biblical characters were all here. On this side was the modern state of Israel had nothing to do with the Israel of the Bible. The Jews of today had nothing to do with the Jews there. It was, like, it was two totally different worlds. And, I mean, I can't explain it. What an idiot I was. And I literally, I grew up in a, in a home where I heard all this anti-Semitic stuff, although I didn't know it was anti-Semitic. It was the Jews this and the Jews that and blah, blah, all that stuff I don't even want to say. That's all I heard. And at school, I figured all the other kids heard the same stuff at home. And um, it was just the way it was. Till that first night I got to Israel. And I got in a taxi and I was going um, through Tel Aviv, and the driver, I assumed, was a Jew. I didn't even know. And I, and I leaned over, and I was in the back seat, and I said to him, Hey, are you guys, <laughs> what a way to talk, are you guys still looking for the Messiah? What was I going to do? I wasn't going to try to evangelize him, because... I didn't know anything about that either. And, um, hey, are you guys still looking for the Messiah? And he goes, of course we are. His hands off the wheel. Car's going down the road like this. I'm going, whoa, excuse me. It was a slap in the face. It was a wake-up call. It was, oh, my gosh. Why did I even ask that? And what was his reaction? And he didn't look all that religious or something to me I you know I still get embarrassed thinking about that first question but thank God I got slapped in the face because it started to change my life right there in that taxi driving down that road because I thought wait a minute 
is this the place where all those Bible stories happened? And then the next question, are the Jews of today have anything to do with those Jews of the Bible? And then the big question, was Jesus a Jew? Not in my house he wasn't a Jew. Not in my bedroom because I had a picture of him up there on the wall. And you know when you're a little kid and you're sent to bed, you don't want to go to bed. So you spend all this time looking at the, uh, the drapes, and it had cowboys and Indians on there. And I mean, I was fighting Geronimo. I was doing all that stuff there. And then I'd look over here, and I had a, a Cleveland Indians pennant, 1948, last time they won the World Series. And then I had this picture of Jesus. Now, and I'd look at that. And if anyone had asked me, what, uh, what was his ethnicity? Well, first I'd have to go find a dictionary to find out what that meant. But what was his ethnicity? Oh, I know. He must be a Swede because I had cousins who were Swedes and they had blue eyes and blonde hair like Jesus had. A Jew? Impossible. How could he be a Jew? All those nasty things I'd heard about Jews that had all been said all the time. How could Jesus be a Jew? He was that nice guy I learned all those stories about. Well, my life changed irrevocably that night because somehow God gave me a heart transplant over the next few years. And I had to read everything that had to do with Israel. I had to read everything that had to do with Jews. I just had to get all that kind of stuff, you know? And, um, and that led me to where I am today. I don't, I never promise anything to anybody that goes to Israel with me. It's going to, something's going to happen. But I've seen it over and over again. And um, I'm, I'm not going to, berate you with a lot of those stories but it's the most amazing thing that happens especially to somebody's heart that's probably hungry to learn more about God's word and about God's plan and um, and that's what I, I want to talk about um, this afternoon um, I got to figure out what's coming up here I went back after this morning I went back to the hotel there and I was getting this ready and then I realized that I was slobbering. All, I'd fallen asleep at the computer, and, and it was all wet. You know, I'd spit all over myself and everything. I'm not, it's, I'm really not sure what's coming up next. But uh, this is, it started out with this question, whose land is it anyway? There seems to be such a dispute, such a fight. Um, oftentimes when I'm on an airplane, they ask me what I do, and I said, you know, sometimes I really lie. I say, I work for Israel. Well, I do. I really do work for Israel because I want people to understand that. And they go, Israel, what are you talking about? And I explain a little bit that I go around and speak about it. And then the, the, an the standard answer from a lot of people is, oh, they've been killing each other over there for a thousand years. Just let them kill. I don't want to know anything about it. Well, they... They really haven't been killing each other over there for a thousand years. Let's look back a little bit about whose land is it anyway, because that seems to be the big fight. Wow, this is going to be tough for you to read. Uh, I'll skip, and I, got, I know I got a lot of this uh, reading on here, and uh, I'll whip through some of it. Um, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north. 
and out of all the countries where he'd banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors. And that has happened in, in many ways, it's happened in our lifetime. It was only about 20 years ago that a million Jews suddenly were allowed to leave Russia. And I remember being in Israel at that time. They came in. Israel was overwhelmed with highly educated Jews who came out of Russia, and there were no jobs for them. How many doctors can a country have? How many physicists? How many professional violinists can one country, a tiny country have? And it used to be, at that time, there were incredible violinists and all kinds of musicians standing on the street corner with their hat down on the ground and playing the most incredible music. They were in symphonies in Russia, and when they came to Israel, there just wasn't enough place for them. A lot of them moved on, but it was at a time when we had a government who really opposed, was kind of opposed Israel. It was a real t time of problems. If you look, I don't know when I'll do this, maybe tomorrow night, um, I want to talk about several presidents of the United States who I call accidental presidents because they never by rights should have been president of the United States. But they were all in there at a, perp at a time and at a purpose that God had them there. Uh, Harry Truman was one. Truman never should have been president of the United States, but God moved him in there. Goodbye, FDR. He was out. And Lyndon Johnson goodbye Kennedy he was out and Johnson was in there and most people have no idea of what Johnson did that blessed our nation because it was a blessing to Israel and the third one was Richard Nixon he's going down the drain with Watergate and God says you got something to do for Israel and he did it now there were other administrations that were not very friendly to Israel. God says, if you are a blessing to Israel and the nation of Israel, God will bless you. And that goes for governments. When a, when a government blesses Israel, God blesses the people of that land. That has happened throughout history. And one of the times when we had an administration in there that was not friendly to Israel, it was George H.W. Bush. Um, during that one. And, and I'm not blaming him, except his main counselors are very anti-Israel. And they're still alive, and they're still putting their input in. And one is um, um, Jim Baker, James Baker, uh, who was very close to the president. Another one was Brent Scowcroft. These guys, you read their stuff, they were anti-Israel. And that was um, what was going on during the... Uh, first Gulf War. During the first Gulf War, George H.W. Bush, 41, he put together a coalition of Arab countries to fight against Saddam. Now, none of them did anything. They showed up and they got uniforms and they got paid and all the rest of that stuff, but he insisted that Israel stay out of that war. And during that, and he said, if you will, we'll take care of your needs with these Russians coming in. And um, and so they did. 
and they took hits from Scud missiles without retaliating. And it was very hard on their government to stand there and to say, we've got to take this because the United States wants us to, because they knew if Israel retaliated, that whole Arab coalition would have fallen apart. And so when the war was over and Israel had taken their beating, then all they wanted from us was a, not, a, not a billion dollar loan. They just wanted the United States to guarantee to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, that Israel would pay it back because they had all of these Russians coming in. They were overwhelmed with a million Russians that came in. And we turned our back on them and said, no, we're not going to do it. And there was a big kind of a conflict there. They didn't get it. President Bush, who had an 89% approval rating during the first Gulf War, didn't get reelected. God wants people who will stand up for his people and for his land. And that's tragic. And every time I see him, like I saw him the other night at the debate, um, I feel sorry because whether he did it or not, well, that's another story. It happened. I won't get into that one. I, I, I didn't even intend on talking about that. Um, that little blue thing there is not half of Lake Michigan that slid down into Wichita. That is the size of Israel compared to the United States. It's tiny. It's very small. It's only 8,000 square miles. Um, as a matter of fact, and I don't know why it does, I couldn't stop it from doing all these funny little things, but that's four Israels that fit inside Indiana as far as square mileage goes. So you can kind of get an idea. It's very tiny. <laughs> all right, stop. Okay. Um, I'm sorry you can't see that very well, but that's a map of the eastern end of the um, uh, Mediterranean. And to the north, that red thing there is Israel. To the north is Turkey. Turkey is in a state of transition again. Five years ago, Turkey and Israel had very close relationships. They were doing billions of dollars of trade, um, especially when it came to military. Israel was repairing equipment for Israel was actually running um, uh, operations with the Turkish army. There was a great deal of, it was the only Muslim country that was openly cooperating with Israel. And then almost overnight, it was cut off. And Turkey became an enemy. Now, Erdogan, who is the president now of Turkey, has been in power there for about 10 years. And um, what he did was he's taken Turkey from a country that wanted to be part of Europe to one that is very pro-Muslim and has pulled away from Europe, has kind of been rebuffed by Europe, and in fact has visions of being the Ottoman Empire again, because it used to be the head of the Ottoman Empire until 1917. So Turkey cut off relations with Israel. Now, as of just a couple of weeks ago, they're trying to get back with them because, frankly, they've been rebuffed um, by um, ISIS. And ISIS is causing lots of problems there. So now they're looking to Israel again to uh, try to be friendly with them. To the south is Egypt. Egypt right now is run by uh, military, even though he was uh, elected um, 
uh, it was a military coup to throw out the Muslim Brotherhood. The reason the Muslim Brotherhood got in there only goes back less than eight years. It's when President Obama made his first overseas trip as a brand new president, and he went to Egypt, and basically he said, it's, there's a new sheriff in town, and um, basically it's a new sheriff that is uh, very akin to the Muslim world. And when he came to Cairo... He said, I want the Muslim Brotherhood in this meeting. And uh, Mubarak, who was the president, who'd been the president for almost 40 years, said it's illegal to have the Muslim Brotherhood. They had laws against it. They were not in the government at that time because they'd been, matter of fact, they were the ones who killed Anwar Sadat nearly 40 years ago for going to Israel. And... Um, and our president insisted that the Muslim Brotherhood be in attendance. And, and Mubarak said, if they're there, I'm not going to be there. And they sat in the front rows. And um, he made his speech, and he did all that kind of stuff. And it was only a few months before Mubarak was out, and the whole this um, Arab Spring started, which really turned into an Arab winter, because... Um, well, never mind why. But anyway, the, so there, finally, when the Muslim Brotherhood took over Egypt, they were cutting off the oil supply that Egypt was selling to Israel. God intervened, and Israel discovered two of the largest gas, natural gas fields in the world. And it's believed that there's oil underneath there. And um, when they needed it, it, it always reminds me of the story of what we call the Magi who showed up when Jesus was a young child and they showed up at the house and where they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Hey, look at Mary. This stuff's great. I don't know what, we, what we're going to do with it. That night, the angel said to Joseph, get on your mule and go to Egypt. He didn't have money to do it before that. It, it arrived and they went. It's kind of like with Israel right now. They didn't, uh, the, all their oil sources were not cut off. As soon as they were cut off, God said, oh, by the way, take a look, look out, out there, there in the, in the ocean. ocean. Boom. Boom. Big, it's all there that they need. They're energy independent right now as far as natural gas and, uh, and oil goes. Iran, I won't speak much about that. Everybody that's paid attention at all that's been awake in the last year or so has realized that John Kerry has saved the world by going over and making a deal uh, with Iran. And Iran, of course, now has sworn, of course, they never were making a nuclear weapon in the first place, but now they swore that they will stop doing what they never did. And so, um, so the world is safe, and um, Iran still is building one. And what they're not doing within their country they have shipped off to North Korea why do you think North Korea is testing those things um, well I don't know uh, if that's true or not Saudi Arabia it's a different world suddenly Saudi Arabia is, is speaking to Israel Saudi Arabia is scared to death of Iran they are on the same page with Israel there's a cooperation going on that has never been there before much of it under the table before but now it's coming out publicly along with the United Arab Emirates and the other Gulf countries they are scared to death of what we have allowed Iran to do 
And um, that pushed them into the corner with Israel, someplace nobody thought they would ever be. Uh, Syria is a total disaster area. No one knows during the last five years how many people have been killed up there. It's, it's estimated now it's 250,000 have been killed in this fighting. And the worst part of it, I mean, among other things, is that Russia is now back in the Middle East. For 40-plus years, Russia has been out. As far as the United States and as far as Israel, that has been good. That's been good foreign policy for us. But our weakness now has allowed them back in. And believe me, they didn't come in because they're nice guys. Um, ask the people in the Ukraine um, about that. And then Iraq, um, we spent a great deal of uh, blood and treasure in Iraq, and we pulled out precipitously. <laughs> Anybody could have told you that. And now, basically, Iran has taken over much of Iraq, and what they don't really control is really controlled by ISIS. Our stepping back out of an area has... Um, it's, it's, everything is upside down there. The one thing, though, that is incredible is that Israel, in the midst of all that mess, is prospering. It is peaceful in Israel. It is, God is doing a work there that he promised 3,500 years ago he was going to do. He says, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and it's being done now. It is the Silicon Valley of the world the high tech, the inventions that are coming out of, there's never been anything like it. Never been a time when so much of God's chosen people, the Jewish brain power has been compressed into such a small area and they have been freed to be entrepreneurs. Um, they right now, in many ways, the entrepreneurship and the capitalism in Israel is greater than it is in the United States. We have so many constraints on our system now, and much of that is not ha has not happened in Israel. They've gone, within the last 10 years, from a socialist state into one where they're freed to invent things. God promised in Genesis 12 that all families on the earth will be blessed by Abraham's descendants. Those are the Jews today. And you start looking at medical breakthroughs and technological breakthroughs. The world is being blessed by that small little nation. Um, I, I better watch what I'm talking about. <laughs> that little red spot, that 8,000 square miles, is the most disputed strip of real estate on planet Earth. And the reason for it is simple. It's the only strip of Earth on the planet where God calls my land. Okay? He made it all anyway. But he calls that my land, and he says, I have a purpose and a plan for my land. And the rest of you guys, live wherever you want. <laughs> Don't mess, though, with my inheritance, that tiny little strip of land. It's his, and he's doing marvelous works in it right now. Um, this is people, property, and a plan. God has a people, um, a special people that he chose 
thousands of years ago, and he said, I've got a mission for you, and you it's not because you're the biggest of people, it's you are, happen to be the smallest of people. As a matter of fact, Jews today, it's very hard to count Jews. Jews can't even do that. Depends on how, what is a Jew and all the rest of that, and I could do a whole hour or more on that, but God knows who they are. There's no lost tribes. They may be lost to some of us, but not to God. He knows where they are, and he's doing things with them today. By the way, about two years ago, when I was in Israel, I, I knew this guy who used to work for Netanyahu. And he got a letter. And he said it was an orange envelope, kind of all crinkled up and stuff. And he opened it. And in this letter, it said, we are one of the lost tribes of Israel. We are the tribe of Manasseh. And we want to come home. This letter had been written to every prime minister of Israel since 1948, and it had never been answered. It's like all these crackpots. Well, this guy, David Frond, uh, decided he wanted to investigate a little bit more. He thought it was kind of a cracked up thing. And he went out to northeast India. And there was a lost tribe of the Jews. Now, they looked like Indians and they kind of looked like Chinese. But they were speaking some sort of Hebrew. They had some Torah scrolls. And they said throughout history, the best they could remember, they were taken away when the northern tribes were taken out of the land. Their best knowledge is they were taken into China. And they were there for hundreds of years and they were pushed around until finally they ended up in northeast India where they are today. And they said that whenever there was a tornado or an earthquake, they would run out into the streets and they'd go, God, don't forget us. We're your children. We're the tribe of Manasseh. We want to come home. Protect us. Nobody even knew they existed. And this uh, David said to me, he said, are you free tomorrow? Can you come to the airport? And I said, yeah. I got to the airport, and here came 25 of the lost tribe of Manasseh, called B'nai And they came in pushing their luggage, you know, all they had. And a friend of mine, a young rabbi, said, come on, let's get together over in the corner. And he prayed over them, and I was so blessed to be part of that. He thanked God that God was bringing back one of the lost tribes. And I believe it firmly that, that they were. Look, they were taken out of the land before the first temple was even destroyed. They didn't know about that. They didn't know about the history of Israel all those years. All they knew was the Torah scrolls that they had until these modern times, and God brought them home. There's a tribe that came from Ethiopia the same way, and, and they're black. And when they got the, look, Israelis, all the Jews thought Jews were white. Because the only Jews they really knew about were the Jews basically that lived in Eastern Europe, in what today we call Belarus, in Poland. Um, in 1938, there were 18 million Jews in the world, and most of them lived in Eastern Europe. Yes, by that time, you know, a lot had come to the United States. But during the war, six million, a third of all the Jews in the world were wiped out. 
Every Jew that was killed would never have another child. There was incredible what happened to those people. Most of Europe, what Hitler's plan was to wipe every Jew in Europe out and then eventually go after the ones in the United States. Today, for the first time, there's more than 6 million Jews in Israel. There's about 6 million Jews in the United States. And there's only about another million scattered around the world. There's only about 13 million. You imagine in 1938 there were 18 million. Today, there's only about 13 million that we know of now. But these tribes are being discovered. As a matter of fact, with DNA, they're able to identify at least one tribe I know of. And that's the tribe of Levi. And it was the tribe of Levi that served at the temple. It was from the tribe of Levi that the priestly family came out of. And they kept their names. Um, even in countries where they were forced to change their names, they changed their name to something that other Jews knew. This was the tribe of Levi. So about 20 years ago, um, they said, I wonder if there's really something to this, if these people who think that they're part of this tribe, really are. So they did a DNA thing and they collected samples from the United States, from England, and from Israel. Anybody who thought they were a tribe of Levi, they had names like Levi. They had names like Lewinsky. <laughs> Remember that one. Um, they had names like um, Cohen, like Khan. Cohen is a priest. And they kept these kind of names. Anybody that had a name like that that wanted to be tested sent in DNA samples and they found a marker. A marker that was significant for the tribe of Levi. And that leads to all sorts of things because even Jesus talked about the temple being rebuilt. And we, we read about the sacrifices being reinstituted. And this stuff is coming together so fast. There's an organization in Jerusalem right now called the Temple Institute. And they have made most of the um, instruments that are needed in the temple. As a matter of fact, it sits outside in Jerusalem, a gold menorah. Costs millions of dollars to make, and it's sitting outside. It's got plastic around it, but that menorah is, as best as they can tell, like the one that was originally in the temple. They've got all this stuff ready to move when the temple is rebuilt. Jesus talked about the temple. He talked about when you see standing in the holy place and so forth. This is not at all what I was going to talk about today. But I'm getting warmed up. Okay. <laughs> God has a people. He has a property. It's called the land of Israel. It's called the promised land. And he has a plan for it. When the people are out of the land, the land is a disaster. 1867, Mark Twain went there. And he wrote about it. And he didn't have, you know, a bone to pick. As a matter of fact, it's so funny. If you ever go to Israel, and I want you to, if you ever go there, you ought to read the book before you go. Because it's about a group of people who went to Israel. And, man, he skewers them. He is so funny about And it's a typical kind of tourist group. This is 1867. So when he gets there, and they're traveling by horseback, and they talked about, he said, on the whole day, as we traveled, we didn't see one person. 
He said the land is so desolate that even the cactus um, has almost um, uh, left the place. He said the Sea of Galilee is the most depressing place I've ever seen. And he wasn't putting it down. He was describing it. And it was that way because the Jews had not yet been called back by God. And if I ever get to what I'm going to talk about, we'll talk about how that happened. To whom does the land belong? Well, in the first place, all the earth belongs to God. But he uses the phrase, my land, eight times um, in Scripture. In every instance, he's talking about the land that he gave to the children of Israel. Uh, something very special about it. Isaiah, I won't read all these to you. You can look them up. There's... Um, Got it? Okay, good. We'll move on. All right. <laughs> Israel was designated by God as the chosen people. So there's a chosen people and there's a promised land. And I believe for at least three different reasons. One was that his people in his land would worship God and show the world the blessings of serving the one true God. That was their mission. That's why at Mount Sinai, God says, I've chosen you. I'm giving you these commandments. You live this way. You are going to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. You're a light to the world because I'll bless you in such a way if, if you do this. So that was one of the purposes. The second one, he had this chosen people to receive the word of God and to transmit the word of God to the world. The fact that we have scriptures is because of the Jews. God gave it to them. Even the New Testament, except maybe for Luke, all the rest of them were Jews who God wrote his word through. Certainly all of what we call the Old Testament. Thank, look, do this. Find a Jew and bless him. And I'll tell you one way you can do it. Go to a store where, you know, you know they're Jewish or something like that, and walk in there and say, I just want to thank you for preserving the Word of God all these years. Boom. And when he gets up off the floor, say, and I want to thank you for many other things because God chose them to do certain things that have blessed us and continue to do that. Usually all we want to do is walk in there and if we find, you know, and stick a tract in their face. And they've, that, they've had that done thousands of times. You know what a Jew has never really received from a Christian is unconditional love. The love of Christ that's in us should be overwhelming to the Jewish people. It says in the scriptures about we are to make them jealous. I remember Kenneth Copeland saying, made any Jews jealous lately? No, we haven't. You know why? Because we haven't lived up to what our mission has been. And, um, but, well, that's another story. Moving on. <laughs> to worship God in the land, to receive and transmit the word of God, and to be the human channel for the Messiah. That taxi cab driver, I asked, he is looking for the Messiah to come. And um, they are the human channel. Jesus was a Jew. They came through, the, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's not going to be an Eskimo. He's still going to be a Jew. 
I see nothing in Scripture that says just because he died and was resurrected and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God that he changed his ethnicity. When he comes back, it says he's coming back as the Lion of Judah. As the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he's still going to be Jewish. What if he says, how have you been treating my kinfolk? Well, we ignore them, you know, and they're all going to hell because they haven't accepted you. I don't think I'm going to answer it that way. To be the human channel for the Messiah from whom we have our salvation. In or, and then God does this in order to protect his purposes for the children of Israel in the land of Israel he promises to bless those who blessed Abraham and his descendants and curse him who cursed them so there's a blessing enshrined around that land and when that land which was desolate has his people back in it, it blooms, it prospers, it has, <laughs> it has oil in it, it has everything they need in it, and for centuries it was thought to not have any of those natural resources. But when God's people are back in it, then it starts, it, it should call the world's attention to what is God doing there? All around it, you've got all these people killing each other, and in there, it's prospering. The world should say, wow, God is really doing what he said he was going to do. But for the most part, the world's going to say, oh, those Jews, somehow they stole everything again. They stole that land from the Palestinians, which is another story in itself. To whom does the land belong? All the earth belongs to God, but he uses the phrases, my land, my land, my land, my land, just what I told you before. The Fertile Crescent is where Abram came from. You remember this from the fifth grade. I don't. I wasn't paying attention in the fifth grade, but I, I was told that's where I learned about the Fertile Crescent. And it starts down there on the right um, where that green arc is, and that's Kuwait. And today, as you move up that channel, you go through Iraq, up into Turkey, and then you come down um, into Israel. And we call it Mesopotamia. It's between the two rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Um, my son was so proud to tell me when he was uh, um, fighting there uh, during the second uh, Gulf War that he got to fish in the Euphrates, you know, something I didn't have a chance to do. I'd really like to do that. Um, 4,000 years ago in the Promised Land, God appeared to a man named Abram, Abram, made a covenant that gave him his descendants the title deed to the land of Israel in perpetuity. I had to look that one up, but it means forever. And in Hebrew, the word is olam. It's forever. And it was a promise to Abram that was without... Um, the first promise to Abraham where it says, I'm going to bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. There's no conditions on that one. Anyone that wants to do that, anyone, doesn't matter if they're Muslim, if they're atheist, if they're whatever it is, if they are a blessing to Abraham's descendants, God must bless them because he tied his hands. He says, I'm going to do it. But when it came to the land, there were conditions on it. 
and the conditions were explained by Moses before the people went back into the land when they came out of Egypt. And it said, if you don't live by my rules in there, then you're going to be taken out of the land, but you'll come back. And then you'll be taken out of the land again. Well, they've been taken out for the last time. According to Amos, this time they will not be uprooted and they're back in. So you don't have to think, well, maybe they'll be taken out of there again. Maybe Iran will come up with a nuclear weapon that'll kill them all. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You have to, I don't care, John Kerry. What, <laughs> oh, how I love that guy. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Israel is not going to be wiped out. Even if some of their leadership thinks they are and they take actions to stop it, it's okay. It's not going to happen or else throw God's word away. God has plans for that nation and he's fulfilling it now. To your, to your descendants I give this land. Just to make it clear, Abraham's descendants today are the Jews. And whether we know what all the tribes are or not, it doesn't matter. God knows and God will fulfill his promises. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And he did. I'm sure that I don't have to... Um, beat this into you. You must be Bible believers or else why are you here on a Saturday afternoon? <laughs> it's not that cold outside, you know, and I really thank you for coming. All the land that you see I'll give to you and your offspring, and there's that word forever. It's the Hebrew word olam. No end to it. He said, I'm giving it to you, and it's yours forever. And I don't care whether the president wants to take it away or the president says, you've got to give up all this land and give it to the Palestinians for their second state. It's 8,000 square miles. It's nothing. It's the size of the county we live in and our adjoining county. Madera and Fresno counties make 8,000 square miles. And when I say this at home to churches where I speak and they go, Get out, it can't be. Everybody there has been all over our two counties. It's teeny weeny. It's a little place. And he says, go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. And Abram did. As a matter of fact, there have been found, and it's only coming to light now, there have been found footprints carved on walls. I mean, like the shape of a footprint. Nobody was walking there. But where the children of Israel traveled, even when they came out of Egypt, and I almost said, believe me, it sounded like Trump. Believe me, believe me, believe me. Believe, believe me. All right, my wife said I can't talk about Trump. I almost said that. Okay. They have found footprints carved along trails where they believe the children of Israel traveled, and it's in Saudi Arabia, not only in the Sinai Desert, because of what was said um, to Abram. Wherever
wherever your foot goes. As a matter of fact, they've been looking for the camp of Gilgal. If you remember, the children of Israel came across the Jordan River and they camped at Gilgal for a long period of time. Nobody's ever found it. But now, from the air, they have photographic evidence. It looks like the shape of a foot about in that area. Big foot. And it's, it's conceivable that they camped in an area like a footprint because God said where you put your foot that is going to be the land that I'm giving to you Um, to your descendants I give this land and then uh, the whole land of Canaan and then I have pictures actual photos of Isaac and Jacob now those are hard to get Um, okay I made it up right right. but I thought they looked like Isaac and Jacob this promise was not only to Abraham but now it was to his son Isaac it was passed on this covenant covenant promise the Lord appeared to Isaac and said don't go to Egypt live in the land stay in this land I will give all of these lands and I'm confirming the oath and then there's another actual photo of Abraham's grandson Jacob And um, he said to Jacob, I will give you and your descendants the land. Now we're talking about all of their descendants. You follow it through in Scripture, you see that the descendants are the Jews today. Those are Abraham's descendants. That covenant still exists today. Um, uh, Okay, I think I got the point. That's Olam, in case you want to write it down in Hebrew. I have given you this forever. That has to cover today. That's who that land belongs to. No matter what, the Palestinians are saying, well, there never was a temple. There, never, there were never Jews in this land until 1900s. There were never this and never that. And people will buy it. But not according to God's word. Um, as a matter of fact, we used to go I haven't been there for a few years. We used to go to this little Arab village in Israel. There's one Jewish lady there. And there's a synagogue. And she runs a synagogue. Now, nobody ever shows up to it. But she can um, give you evidence that her family never left the land of Israel. All the way back. There's always been Jews there. Even when the land was pretty much abandoned. And um, she's really a character to meet. Now, that thing that looks kind of like a three-leaf clover... Right in the center, that's a very early map, that um, a map of the, of the ancient world. And right at the heart of those three leaves is Israel. This gives you an idea that to the right, that's, um, that's Asia, to the south is Africa, and to the left is Europe. In the ancient world, all of the armies that went out to conquer the rest of the world had to go through Israel. All the trade went through Israel. God had them exactly where he wanted them so that, among other things, the word of God could be transmitted to Europe, to Asia, and Africa. They all had to go through there. God knew what he was doing and where he had them. Israel was located at the center of the ancient world, and I believe, from a spiritual standpoint, Israel is at the center of the world today. 
today. Israel is at the center of future world events. If you start to understand that, you're not befuddled by great movements that are going on. I mean, we see a movement going into Europe right now, a Muslim movement that is overtaking so many of the countries in Europe. At first, they invited him in, and it's changing all of the culture. Well, these movements are not just haphazard things. Things that happen in this day and age are not haphazard. They're all part of a big plan. It doesn't mean it's all according to God's will, but it has been. We've certainly been given the outline of it, and the center of it is Jerusalem. Um, this is, you know, Israel does not occupy by any means the land that God has promised to them. And I will say this, I know no one in Israel, nor have I heard of anyone who says, we need to go out and conquer more of these Arab lands. But yet, in God's plan, he said, I'm giving you from the river of Egypt, I'm sorry, this doesn't show up very well, all the way to the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River is in Iraq today. All of that somehow and at some time is going to belong to the tribes of Israel. And um, believe me, <laughs> believe me, I said it. <laughs> the Arabs don't want to hear about this part, so we'll just move on. <laughs> the territories of the land of Israel were divided up this way among, uh, basically among the tribes. It started out there was 12 tribes. But the tribe of Joseph, because he was so faithful to God, actually turned into two tribes. His two sons were Manasseh and Ephraim. So you had 13 tribes. But the Levites were not given a section of the land. They were be the ministers to all of the tribes. So they were given cities and they were given some lands inside of uh, the way it was all divided up. So it was divided up um, uh, like this. The tribe of Manasseh, half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben were all on the east side of the Jordan River. All of the rest of the tribes were over on the west side of the Jordan River. That's how it was initially. But God has, um, in his own plan, a much bigger uh, piece of land um, during the millennial age. Um, I have no idea why those camels are going across there. Uh, oh, yes, I do know why. i got to back up a minute. Because... There were expulsions from the land. Moses had warned him, either live by my, if you follow after false idols and everything else, you're going to be expelled from the land. And the first expulsion of the land um, was by the Assyrians. This is when that tribe of Manasseh was taken out. It was, um, I forget the year, uh, 587 was when the temple was destroyed, so it was even prior to that. It was a long, long time ago. And then um, then the uh, tribe of Judah was, was taken out of the land. And this was when the Babylonians, remember Nebuchadnezzar, came in and took the rest of them out. The ten tribes were gone, but a lot of those people escaped um, out of the tribes, and they came down and joined themselves to the tribe of Judah. So there started to be an intermingling, and uh, the lines of the tribes were getting kind of blurred 
uh, the ones that stayed behind. But then when the Babylonians came in, Nebuchadnezzar, and they took the southern tribes, the two that remained basically were Benjamin and Judah, along with all the rest, and they were taken out. That was known as the Babylonian exile. And then along came someone named Cyrus. And God, even before Cyrus was born, God said, Cyrus is going to be one that will allow my children to go back. And so as, as um, Cyrus did that, he told the Jews, anybody that wants to go back from Babylon, head on out. Let me help you do it. God moved him in such a way that he did that. That was an amazing kind of thing. Harry Truman, who knew his Bible very well, and was very, very influential in the formation of the state of Israel. Um, he was the president who first acknowledged the new state of Israel in 1948. And um, he was, uh, he went against all kinds of pressure. Everybody in his cabinet, everybody was against him doing that um, until his heart got changed in one moment by a man named Haim Weitzman. And maybe I'll talk about that tomorrow night, about the president who really changed things. But the thing was, he knew his Bible. Years later, even after he was out of office, he was being honored um, by a Jewish organization in New York. And they were introducing him as... Um, I forget what they were alluding to, something about how he helped with the rebirth of Israel. And he said, no, 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 I'm Cyrus. Now, most of the people there didn't understand um, what he was referring to. But because he knew his Bible, he knew that Cyrus was the one who said to the Jews, you can go back if you want to go back. So they came back into the land. That was the first time uh, after having been expelled from it. Um, and then, so they were back in the land, and this was the time of Jesus while they were there. Uh, first, the Greeks came in uh, 333 uh, B.C., and, um, and then they were followed by the Romans. And it was during the Roman times that, uh, that Jesus was there. The, the first temple had been destroyed, and a second temple was built by King Herod. Um, well, earlier than that, but Herod refined it and everything. That was during Jesus' time. And that's when the disciples came to Jesus and said, look at these, this temple. It was one of the most magnificent buildings in all of the world. It was on a 40-acre platform up on top of a mountain. And everyone in the world was so impressed by it. And they said to Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. And he said, not one stone will remain upon another here. That was unthinkable. How could that be? They were such monstrous stones. Well, we saw them just a few days ago. That was wiped clean in honor of Jesus' terrible prophecy that he had to say. That temple and those stones are still laying there today. But there's going to be another temple. Um, so the Romans in 70 A.D. destroyed the temple. And said, that's it. We are sick and tired of these Jews causing trouble under the great Roman Empire. But they didn't expel all of them. Well, about seven years later, the Jews rebelled again. And this time, Hadrian was the emperor. And he said, that's it. We're not putting up with this Jewish stuff anymore. 
And he said, here's what I'm going to do. And he probably looked up Psalm 83 where he said, I've got to get rid of the name of Israel. He said it will no longer be called Judea. It was being called Judea because of the tribe of Judah uh, that was there. He said, that's it. Wipe all the maps out. No more Jews. What are we going to name it? So he looked around and he asked his men, what should we call it? And some of them said, how about Lafayette? And they said, no, I don't think so. We don't even know how to spell that. And, and so they came up, came up with other names. And finally, they said, let's name it in honor of the ancient enemy of the Jews. Who is that? <coughs> right. <laughs> Excuse me. How do you spell that? Gesundheit. Um, the Philistines. But in Latin, it was called Palestina. So they said, we will wipe out the name of the Jews and we'll call it Palestina. And we will wipe out the name of Jerusalem, which they destroyed again, and we'll name it after me, Hadrian, and my family name. We'll call it Aelia Capitolina, the capital of, the, of his family. And so they changed the name. They wiped out the name of Judah. They wiped out the name of Israel. And they said, get the Jews out of here. And they drove most of them out. This was in 135 A.D. They were, they were gone. And so the name Palestina sort of caught on and was kept there. A lot of times it wasn't even used for that. They called the place Syria. They had other names for it. But the name of Israel was gone. Today, there is a people who call themselves Palestinians. That only started in 1964. Prior to 1948, all the Jews that were living in Israel were known as Palestinian Jews. All the Arabs living there were Palestinian Arabs because the land was called Palestine by the British. It wasn't a people. The Arabs never thought to call themselves Palestinians. And uh, the newspaper was called the Palestine Post. Today it's called the Jerusalem Post. The symphony orchestra made up of all Jews was called the Palestinian Symphony. Today, it's the Israeli Symphony. In 1964, Arafat started telling the world that there was a unique ethnic group called Palestinians. They weren't. They never even called themselves that. They were Arabs who had come in from other Arab countries because there was work there. And yes, they were Arabs, and they spoke Arabic. They didn't speak Palestinian, because there is no language. There's no Palestinian language. There's no Palestinian culture. There's no really Palestinian foods. All the things that make up an ethnic group don't apply to the Palestinians. But once the world started buying this, and Arafat was a tremendous a marketer, right? International marketer. He convinced people there was this ethnic group called Palestinians. And because everybody bought that, the next step was they need a land. They don't have a land of their own. And the world said, yes, there's a people named Palestine. They need a Palestinian state. And so that's where we are today. We bought into it. Baloney. The 8,000 square mile place is called Israel. 
God called it Israel. We shouldn't call it Palestine. It's a buzzword, and the more you use it, the more you adhere to this lie. Yes, there are Arabs living there, and many of them are Israeli Arabs. They have all the rights and the citizenship that every Israeli person has. There's also ones who have refused to accept Israeli citizenship. And there are others living in a disputed area where they don't have citizenship. It's kind of a mixed bag. But nevertheless, there are people there, but they're not Palestinians. They should be called what they are. But the world bought into that. Our president bought into that. He insists that they must have a land of their own and it must be cut out of that tiny little country. <sighs> that was something else I wasn't going to talk about. <clears throat> the Romans threw the Jews out and then this, this is what it was known as. The land was known as a land without a people and a people without a land. That was the Jews. That was what it looked like in 1867. In 1870, when um, uh, Samuel Clements, uh, Mark Twain was there. But God said something about that land. He said, it will no longer be said to you that you are forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said you are desolate. This is Scripture. And what has happened? But you will be called Hepzibah. My delight is in here. Your land will be married. It's going to be married to the people. It's going to be a place that will rejoice. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. And then there's, I, I won't go into this scripture too much because people really get in trouble on it. John Hagee really got in trouble on this scripture because it was pulled out of context. It was said that, um, oh, I don't know what it was said, but this just happened to Ted Cruz recently. One pastor who um, endorsed him, they dug into stuff that he had taught and he was teaching about this scripture and they made it such a big deal because it has to do with sending fishers and hunters. God said in Jeremiah he's going to send fishers and hunters to bring back his people. And so they said, well, then it was God's will that he sent the Nazis to find the Jews, to hunt them down and do all that stuff. And they just took this and just turned it around and reporters and everything, they buy into it. So Ted Cruz, why do you have this Nazi lover endorsing you and all that sort of stuff? Anyway, for God sent Zionist fishers to bring them back because it started in the late 1800s that there were people in Poland especially and in Russia who said, why are we living under these terrible conditions in Russia and in Poland where we're always, why don't we go to the promised land? And for centuries, Jews who had these ideas would go to their rabbi, and the rabbi would, said, would say, when the Messiah comes back, we're all going. We, don't, we can't go before the Messiah comes back. And they said, well, when's he coming back? Well, he'll come back when every Jew keeps Shabbat. 
Well, I guess this Shabbat, he, he can't come back because some Jew didn't do it. Or when every Jew keeps kosher for one day. Or they come up with all these kind of things. So the Jews got this in their mind that by their actions, they either speed up or slow down the coming of the Messiah. Now, that's been used against Christians because they say, oh, you Christians, yeah, you pretend you love us. You want to get us all back into the uh, promised land so that we can be slaughtered and then your Jesus will come back. Now, they take a little bit here, a little bit there. They put it all together, and it's almost in the DNA of many Jewish people they don't believe, who necessarily don't believe anything anyway. But they think that Christians have this idea that we can speed up or we can slow down the coming of the Messiah. I've never heard it taught, but that's believed, especially by many Reformed Jews who um, there's, a, there's a great fear that their children will be converted to Christianity. And, they, and they're told these kind of things. Now, they never tell you this, but it's in the back of their minds. So you kind of got to understand what's been seeded in there. It's kind of stuff like this. Oh, if you see something where God's word says, I'm going to send fishers to bring them back out fishing for the Jews to bring them back to the land. And then if the fishers don't do it, then I'm going to send hunters. Well, you can take it two different ways. And um, that's why I'm not even going to mention it. <laughs> but these are in the 1880s. God was touching Jews, especially in Europe, and they started coming back against all odds, against hundreds of years of tradition that says we don't leave until the Messiah comes. And they started coming back. And they said, we are going to go back as farmers. We're going to go back and redeem the land by working the land. Um, and these were some of them that came back. They're dressed like Arabs. Well, they got back there. They said, gee, if there's a few Arabs that are here, they're wearing these headdresses and everything. I guess that's the way we ought to dress. So you couldn't hardly tell them apart. In the late 1800s, hunters persecuted Jews in Russia. Why did some of them start leaving Russia in the 1880s? Well, if you watch Fiddler on the Roof, you get an idea. Okay, they, it's so much about uh, the Jewish way of life in Europe in the 1880s in that movie that you can see, remember the pogroms when the Russians, uh, the police chief says, you know, get ready, you know, there's going to be one, we're not going to, those pogroms would happen over and over again. What you and I as Christians don't know and has never been taught to us is that for thousands of years, Christians have killed Jews. And what do I mean by Christians? Well, almost always these pogroms in Europe, and I mean in Germany and in Poland and everything else, were almost always led by some Christian carrying a cross. And it usually happened on Good Friday because the sermons in the Catholic Church were always, the Jews killed Jesus. Let's go down and teach him a lesson. And they'd go down to the ghettos and they set the ghettos on fire and they'd do all this stuff. And you'd say, well, those weren't real Christians. The Jews did not have a litmus test. Are you a real Christian? You're burning my house. Oh, you're not a real Christian. Well, it's okay. Go ahead. They didn't know. When I first went to Israel in, in the 1972, 
If I was talking to Jews on the street and I mentioned Jesus, the reaction would have been from the older Jews, they heard the name, they would spit. We'd go, oh my gosh, why would you do that? See, what we didn't realize, every one of them were survivors of the Holocaust. Every one of them had aunts and uncles and grandparents and everything else killed, murdered by Christians. No, no, they were Nazis. To the Jews, they were Christians. You know why? They were wearing a cross. We call it a swastika. In German, it's called a Hockenkreuz, a hooked cross. And that cross was just turned on its side a little bit. Hitler used it. It had been around forever. But to a Jew, that was a cross. There, everybody in their family had been murdered by Christians. And Jesus, evidently, was the first Christian. And so when they'd hear that word, they'd spit. God is working in the hearts of Jews, especially in Israel, like nothing before. If today I went over there this afternoon and I have found the average Jew on the street and I start talking about Jesus, he'd go, yeah, he was an Israeli, wasn't he? That's a softening of the heart. It says in Ezekiel that God is going to take that heart of stone and he's going to turn it to a heart of flesh. There is almost a pride in the fact that we recognize that Jesus was an Israeli. The Jews are recognizing that. 1972, if you could have found one Messianic congregation, and that means these are Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, if you could have found one, it would have been amazing. Today, it's estimated there's probably 20,000 Messianic Jews in Israel. You ask the average Jew, what about those Jews that accept Jesus? He goes, fine with me. You know, that's what they believe. It's not, wow, we're going to burn them out. It's an amazing thing that is happening. It's also the first time that Christians like you and I have had our hearts touched where we love the people of Israel, where we, where we are ready to do things for them, and not with the caveat that, you know, if you'll convert, here's a, here's a nice track. As soon as you convert, I'm really going to love you. Love them first. God works on their heart. God worked on your heart. No, that's how you were ready to accept Christ. Okay, they never saw unconditional love until now. And what a joy it is in our lives that we have been loved and accepted by Jewish families who treat us better than our own families. <laughs> and they're not born again. But they love us because they know we love them. God is working on their hearts. God is doing a great miracle um, in the land. I better get to what I was going to teach about. <laughs> God says in Jeremiah 31, 8, I will bring them from the land of the north. That's probably those millions that came from Russia and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers, women in labor. A great thong will return. There are organizations that have gone out searching for the Jews in, in Latvia, in uh, Romania, and in places like this. Places, and they're still doing it today, places where Jews are so poor that they couldn't get together the $25 to get the paperwork uh, just to leave the country. A friend of mine 
and Lenny Allen was telling me how he was back up in somewhere somewhere near Russia. And, and they were going into these communities and they were looking for Jews and asking if they wanted to leave and go uh, to Russia because Bridges for Peace and, and other organizations were ready to help them do that. And how he was carrying an aged woman who was crippled to the ship and he realized this was a part of prophecy. This was part of God's plan, and he was part of it because he was reaching out that way. It says in God's word, speak comfortably to my people, Jerusalem. Comfort them, for their war has been over. Anyway, these are Jews that were coming back. I'll bring them from the land of the north, and there were some old old pictures of what was going on up until modern times. And they started coming back with nothing, I know a family, their grandparents walked from Georgia, not not in the south here, but in Georgia, in Russia, walked all the way with nothing, robbed along the way, but they got to Israel, and today they are some of the, you know, one of the staid old families uh, in Israel. God was drawing them back, and at first it was just kind of a drip, and then it turned into a stream bed, and then finally almost into a river. And they were trying to get out uh, uh, during the late 1930s, and uh, Britain, though, said, no, we can't accept any more in here because they had the British mandate. And it was the beginning of the end of the British Empire when they turned against the Jews. Um, This is what the land looks like today, the land that was desolate. This this happened to me. This was a great moment in my life. I mentioned it this morning. I had a group over there, and we decided we would go help a farmer um, up in Samaria, which is called the West Bank. We're going to help a farmer uh, harvest his uh, grapes. And when we got there, he said, oh, man, we finished last night. The harvest is over. I said, oh, and I threw a little fit and rolled on the ground and cried. And I said, can't we do something? He said, well, we've got some rootstock. If you want to help us put in a new vineyard, yes, we will. And we're out there putting a new vineyard in, in the hills of Samaria that had not been planted for over 2,000 years. And it says in Scripture, because he came out while I was planting this, opened his Bible, he said, Jeremiah 31.5 says, Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. And he says, You are part of prophecy today. Oh, man, did that thrill me. Just a tiny thing that we were doing for a promise that was over 3,000 years old, it's being done today. And then he's got two sons, and their names are Caleb and Joshua. Two of the spies, right? And they're twins. He named them Caleb and Joshua. And when we were walking up out of this vineyard where we just planted this, the boys were with me, and they said, you know, something really unique happened right here. Uh, This was in the, the vineyard that now is about 10 years old. And I said, what was that? He said, the guy that was out here was going to spray the, the, the new rootstock that was in. 
But he waited till two in the morning when there wasn't any wind and nobody would be around. So he's out there driving his tractor with the lights on and he's spraying. And he said a wind came up swirling around, blowing everything on him so bad he couldn't even see where he was driving. And so he shut down the tractor and went up to where his car was parked. And when he got there, his phone was ringing. And it was one of the guards. I said, you're all right? He says, yeah, what's the matter? He said, terrorists just came in, went right through where you were, and we had a gunfight. We shot him dead. They came, and they would have killed him. But what, what intervened? A wind. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, it was a big enough thrill to find out I was part of prophecy, and then to walk past a place where God literally intervened and saved the life of this farmer. Um, was the icing on the cake and whoops anyway that was the um that's the vineyard and um that's some of the grapes uh, coming off it's and i have a friend in israel he says every time you eat fruit in this land you are eating prophecy because it's prophecy being fulfilled of what goes on there and so um this is what the land looked like in the 1800s. I, when I first found this photograph, I thought it was Vietnam because they looked like water buffalo. That's what most of that land was. Jews bought this land. Sometimes they bought it over and over again, four and five times. And the way they bought it was throughout the world, they had these little boxes where they'd put a penny in or two pennies and weekly someone would come around and collect this for the jewish national fund i mean new york city and the tenements all over the world and as they'd get this money then they would buy the land from usually arab landowners who were absentee landowners up in lebanon and they'd buy the land and when they get there it was this it was like florida swampland and when they came, they had nothing. They had no tools to do it, but they started digging. This is near Harmegido. This is the Armageddon Valley. And they just had shovels, and they're in there draining the swampland. This were some of the canals that they dug. And anyway, that's that swampland today. It's the most fertile area in all of Israel. It's, it's the breadbasket of Israel, and it confirms what it says in Ezekiel 36, and it talks about the mountains of Israel. By the way, the mountains of Israel are the West Bank, the occupied West Bank that we keep insisting Israel has to give away to the Palestinians. But God said, I got plans for the mountains of Israel. You will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you. God's concerned for the mountains. And I'll look on you with favor. You'll be plowed and sown, and I'll multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. It's not the Palestinian nation. It's the house of Israel. That's why that's never going to happen. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I'll increase the number of men and animals upon you, and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I'll settle people on you as in the past, and I'll make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. There's about 41 times in that section of Scripture where God says, I'm going to do this, and then he says, then 
you will know that I'm the Lord. Then you will, somehow we think, well, the Jews being back there, you know, they're not born again, and it can't be really fulfillment of Scripture. God says, I'm going to do this stuff. Then they will know. And when they know, and I think we're in a time when it's then. Then they are knowing. Yeah, of course. Jesus was an Israeli, wasn't he? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Okay, I have, um, I've gone longer than I'm supposed to go. Um, do you have any questions over this stuff? Uh, we'll move on from this uh, tonight. I've got a whole different thing I'm going to talk about. It's all about Israel, but um, I wanted to talk about the land, whose land it belongs to, and so forth. And I think I did talk a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any questions? I'm I'm glad to um, tap dance around them. <laughs> well, good. Okay. Um, if not. <laughs> Does it mean we don't care? <laughs> I don't think it means that at all. Um, praise God. Tonight at um, 6. Yeah. Is that? Is tonight that? at 6. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well. Let's give the Lord a hand for what's been shared here. Because.